We continue our uh, meditations as we reflect on the word of the Lord in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, Last week we looked at evangelism. It's a word rarely used these days, but it's a Bible word. It's a biblical word. It means the good news of Jesus Christ that are declared by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, The week prior, we looked at um, what it means to be the church and how Paul helps us understand who we are called to be as the body of Christ. And today we look again at this letter to the church in Thessalonica, the fourth chapter, beginning at the first verse. Paul writes, Finally, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you learn from us how you ought to live and to please God, as in fact you are doing, you should do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication, that each of you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one wrong or exploit a brother or sister in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, just as we have already told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God did not call us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever rejects this rejects not human authority, but God, who also gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning love of the brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anyone write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do love all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, beloved to do so more and more, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we directed you, so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So having looked at Paul's teaching on the church, having been reminded of our call to share the good news, the evangelion of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to consider some things that we might learn from Paul's letter when it comes to discipleship. And in the body of the letter, in the verses that we just heard, uh, Paul gives us, I think, a very easy to remember, uh, very simple and good definition of discipleship. It's simply a matter of how we ought to live, how we should live as God's people, as those sealed by the Holy Spirit and marked with the cross of Christ in baptism. And as I was thinking about this sermon and uh, reminiscing, I thought back to uh, my early days of ministry in Richmond, Virginia. I got to tell you, Richmond, Virginia and Albuquerque, New Mexico are very different I served my first church in Richmond, 26 years of age, right out of seminary. I was so green. I was so young. And uh, by God's grace, I didn't destroy that church. And I will serve this congregation, and you've heard it before, till I die or retire, whichever comes first. I hope I get to retire. But I was thinking about Richmond and Albuquerque and all the differences. Richmond known as River City, was established by the British in 1737. Our own beloved Duke City was established earlier. I didn't know that in my American history, that Albuquerque was established in 1706, not by the Brits, but the Spanish. In Virginia, the most popular, well-loved breakfast meal on the go is a sausage biscuit. Say it if you know it, what's the most popular on-the-go breakfast here? 
breakfast burrito. And if you would like to know, my favorite's a number nine from Golden Pride. <laughs> Just saying, if you want to drop by any morning with a number nine, that's between you and God. In New Mexico, the majority of people affiliate um, religiously with the Roman Catholic Church. Did you know that one out of every three New Mexicans um, considers him or herself to be Roman Catholic? Uh, Lutherans in this state account for less than 1% of the total population. So if you're a Lutheran Christian, you are truly in a minority group. The oldest congregation among Lutherans in New Mexico was founded in 1891. Do any of you know what that happens to be? St. Paul Lutheran Church, the one you see with the big sweeping roof down by the big eye. In Virginia, it's not the Roman Catholics who are the dominant religious group, but it's the Southern Baptist. Lutherans there are in the minority. When I was serving that church in Richmond and I would meet Baptist ministers and they found out I was a Lutheran, they kept trying to get me saved over and over and over. The oldest congregation among Lutherans in Virginia was founded in 1740. And some of you know it. You've been there. It's the old Hebron Lutheran Church in Madison County. Well, so many differences between Duke City and River City. But as a pastor who has served congregations in both locations, there is a profound similarity. And that is um, our unapologetic, robust biblical theology that the world needs because there's many people who've yet to hear the true gospel of Jesus Christ there are people in New Mexico and Virginia who've never heard about God's amazing grace I have met countless people who were raised and I'm not trying to pick on Roman Catholics or Baptists and maybe these people just didn't have ears to hear it but I have met people raised in those two traditions which could not be more different huh Southern Baptist and Roman Catholic who think Christianity is all about, I have to do enough good works so that at the end of my life, when I draw my last breath, the scales of my life will have more good deeds outweighing the bad. So that when I see St. Peter at the pearly gates, he'll have to let me in. Because I was a good enough person. These folks have no idea that Jesus died for sinners. And they seem to be unaware of the biblical truth that we'll never do enough to earn a place in heaven. There's good news in Jesus Christ. He died for people like us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, every last one of us. The good news of God's grace is news for a lot of people today, including folks who go to church in all 50 states. And it was good news for a person you may have heard of by the name of Martin Luther in 16th century Germany. As he imagined God in his cell, in his prayer room, all he could picture was God's harsh judgment on his life as a wretched sinner. Only when Luther started reading and rereading scripture did that good news, that word of grace, come forth in a fresh new way. And he hate to say discovered because it was there all along but he found what had been obscured for centuries by the church itself no one can make him or herself righteous we've all fallen short of God's glory salvation cannot be earned but it is a costly gift purchased by the blood of Jesus himself so as I've done a few times through the years I do again this morning 
I'm quoting a friend, a spiritual mentor, and I think one of the finest theologians of modern times, Dallas Willard. When I was in a seminar that he was leading in Pasadena, California, I was the only Lutheran in the room, and he pointed me out and said, Bruce, you're a Lutheran, right? Yes, Dallas. Thank God for the Lutherans. You guys remind us that grace is opposed to earning. But then he went on and said, but it wouldn't be too bad if you Lutherans realize that God's not opposed to a little effort either. And that's one of the most famous quotes in, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. Grace is opposed to earning, but that same grace is not opposed to us doing our best to glorify God. So this morning, I want to focus on uh, four questions that I think are right there in the text. I mean, I didn't make these up. I think they're right there in God's word written by Paul. And as we think about living faithfully, as we think about showing a little effort motivated by grace, uh, this is the first question I think we can ask of ourselves when we're about to make a decision or face you know, some challenge, some circumstance that brings a new reality. Will it please God? Paul says, finally, brothers and sisters, we ask you, as you learned, think how you ought to live and please God. And you should do so more and more. Will it please God? Now, it is a wonderful and interesting thing indeed to be a senior pastor, almost 60 years of age, and have your beloved mother in the congregation as a member of the church you're serving. My mom's been a member here for three years. She knows me. And I remember well in high school when I was heading out the front door, almost at a full sprint with my car keys ready to go out and have fun with my friends. Her voice, Bruce, remember who you are. And oftentimes over dinner, before I dashed out to go party with my friends, mom would say, Bruce Jr., you can do anything you want. You can do anything you want at all, as long as you wouldn't mind me knowing about it. I think a bigger, more important question is will our actions, will our behaviors, will our speech please God? And unlike my mother and my father, unlike your parents and your children for that matter, from whom you might succeed in hiding some of the things you've done or are doing, you can hide nothing from God. So Paul would have us ask the question of ourselves, Will this decision, this statement, this choice please the Lord? And we ask that question, will it be pleasing to God? Not in fear, but in love. Knowing that God loves us and truly wants what's best for us. I've talked to so many people through the years who say, boy, those Ten Commandments, I'm really good at eight of them, but there's two of them I'm always breaking, no matter how hard I try. And the truth is, we don't break the commandments. The commandments are eternal. They are solid. They are truth. They cannot be broken or amended or diminished. When we 
disobey a commandment, we don't break it. But you see, it's the brokenness of our lives that can unfold. It's the relationships that become fractured. It's trust that can be shattered. And sometimes it's really hard to rebuild trust once it's been lost. And lives that can be ruined. The commandments aren't broken. But we can have brokenness. And God doesn't want that. God wants our lives to be filled with joy and gladness and goodness and mercy. A second question that comes out of the text is very much like the first. Is it honorable? Uh, Paul says in verse 4, each of you know how to control yourselves in holiness and honor. So will what I'm about to do, will the decision I'm facing, will my choice please God, will it bring honor to the name of the Lord? Will people see in me the God who loves me, or will people be repelled and pushed away, marginalized, by what they see in me as a Christian. We seek to do that which is honorable, not for personal gain, and certainly not for recognition, because it's simply the right thing to do. So a few years after the Wilders moved here, I mean a few months after we moved here in 98, it was 1999, Kirsten and I had saved some money and there were some repairs, some upgrades that were needed at our house. And we went to Lowe's and we purchased a whole bunch of stuff And on the way out, my wife, Kirsten, who is the personal accountant in our family, was looking over the receipt, and we're just like two feet away from the cashier, and Kirsten says, oh, this is wrong. And sure enough, the cashier had not charged us for nearly $400 worth of items that were already in the cart. So we stood there and said to the cashier, there's a problem, you didn't charge us for a bunch of stuff here, like $400. We could have gone could have used an extra $400 with four daughters at home, but that would not have been the right thing. It wouldn't have been honorable. And I don't say that before you to brag. We simply did the right thing. But here's what surprised me, the reaction of the cashier. She was ticked off. Why didn't you just keep going? This happens all the time. Now I'm going to have to start all over and void this out. And the people in line were unhappy with us for pointing out the mistake. And then the manager came over, and the manager wanted to know what the problem was, you know, at that cashier's station. And, well, these people were on their way out, but they discovered it and charged him. He looked at us like we were crazy. Why didn't you just keep on going? Happens all the time. Well, because it was the right thing to do. Again, nothing to brag about, simply just being honest. And that seems to be, in many places, um, atypical. So we're called to be atypical. We're called to be people who do the honorable thing. And, and that doing the right thing didn't cost us $400. We should have paid it in the first place, you see. And here's a third question. Does it exploit another? That's something we could all ask of ourselves in relationships and circumstances, working environments. No one should wrong or exploit a brother or sister, says Paul. Boy, if doing the honorable thing is atypical, this teaching of Paul really makes us different than the conventional wisdom of the world and the thinking that goes around, and you know it well. You've heard it before. You know, in this world, it's dog-eat-dog. 
You know, in this world, you've got to break some eggs to make an omelet. You know, in this world, it's survival of the fittest. You know, you've got to step on a few people if you're going to climb the ladder to success. Do unto others before they do unto you. There's nothing wrong with it if you don't get caught. And if no one finds out, there's no harm done. And on and on and on. But it's different in the kingdom of God. It's different in the body of Christ. We're called to be different to never exploit. I was reminded just a couple weeks ago, a young man I've been talking to where Kirsten and I go and work out at the gym. I've been inviting him to church and he finally told me, look, I'm not interested. Well, why? Well, I used to go to church. But the pastor at our church did some bad things with some of the children. One of the greatest scandals in the church today, it's not just the number of priests, but it's the number of Protestant pastors too who have taken advantage of exploited people, including little children whom they should have been protecting. That is a violation of trust. It is exploitation. It is sin. And it has caused many people to stay away from church for years, including this young man. And I said, well, I'm not that pastor. I didn't do those things. Yeah, yeah, well. We've had enough of church. Lord have mercy. But what is true for clergy is also true for you, the baptized. We should never exploit a situation, take advantage of a person who's vulnerable. Instead, we need to protect them and care for them. Stand between them and evil. Not be the one that brings evil upon them. And here's a fourth question that some of you might think is political. I don't think it's political at all. I think it's biblical. It's right there in the text. Will it create dependence? (laughs) Paul says, aspire to live quietly. Mind your own business. Do your work so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, this creates a dynamic tension, doesn't it? as you consider the whole of God's word. In Matthew 25, Jesus said very clearly, you better feed the hungry, give water to the thirsty, and clothe the naked. Because I'm watching. And when you do that, you're doing it unto me. And when you neglect the hungry, the thirsty, and the naked, you're neglecting me. Those are strong words. But in God's word, we also hear from Paul in Ephesians that thieves should stop stealing. Let them get a job and work honestly with their hands. And then they'll have something to share with the needy. And then in his second letter to the Thessalonians, he says, anyone unwilling to work should not eat. Because we hear that some of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. So we command and exhort you in the Lord Jesus to do your work and earn your own living. So you got Jesus saying, give food, drink, clothing. And then you've got this teaching on not creating dependency. So, what do we do? Well, we do what this congregation does, I think. We um, take Jesus at his word. Hungry people need food. Thirsty people need water. Naked people need shelter and clothing. We support and participate in all kinds of ministries that do that. But we're also committed to transformation. That helps people move from that kind of dependency to the dignity and the joy that come in, in being self-sufficient. And so we, um, we do both. 
We support those primary ministries that simply meet human needs, but we also partner with organizations like Albuquerque Rescue Mission, now known as Steel Bridge and The Rock at Noonday, that are all about transformation, helping people move from that situation of despair and dependency to some measure of joy in having a job and being off the streets. And I think that this radical call to discipleship is a call to all of us, whether we're doing that hands-on or simply by the way we support our congregation's involvement in these ministries. For a church, these things are not optional. They're essential parts of what it means to be disciples. Richmond, Albuquerque, so many differences. Culture, climate, but there are so many similarities. Similarities that can be found in River City, Duke City, every city in between, and every city beyond. In every age, God calls his people to faithful discipleship. It doesn't matter where you are, what your circumstance might be. And this God calls us in grace. He calls us in love beyond our deserving. And he invites us to show a little effort in pleasing him, even as we know and confess that we'll never earn his forgiveness and mercy. These are gifts in Jesus Christ. Amen.